Friends, uh, several months ago, I uh, shared with you a sort of humorous story about how Ross and I, our associate pastor, who's in charge of our contemporary service, The Gathering, traveled to Kansas City back in October. And on the way back home, our flight was delayed to the point at which we didn't get back home uh, to Atlanta, so not all the way home. We got to Atlanta at about 1230 at night. I ended up having to sleep in a hotel room for about four hours, maybe, and got back through TSA. And anyway, the long story short version of it is I was zoned out and almost got arrested by TSA because I was not listening to the instructions of putting my suitcase in a basket instead of just trying to roll it through the x-ray machine because I was just so tired. Part of the story I don't think I shared with you was that when we were stuck in Kansas City for all those hours, it's a very small airport, at least for being an international hub uh, for, for that area. And, and we were in an area where the restaurants had all closed and we were going to be there for hours upon hours. So Ross and I, you know, he's, he's one of those millennial guys who knows what to do in those situations. He got in his phone and found Uber Eats. And so we got food delivered to the terminal. I had to go out and get the food and come back through security with it. Well, there was other Methodists because this was a Methodist gathering. And so this other church from Birmingham was there with us. Ross and I ordered chipotle, if you've ever had that. It's kind of Mexican food. We ordered chipotle just for ourselves. This other church, Asbury, they decided they were going to order 20 pizzas. And they were just going to give out food to everybody. And so they got all these pizzas in through security. And they were going around saying, here, we're stuck in an airport. Here's some free food. We're from Asbury Methodist in Birmingham, Alabama. The people from Bluff Park got chipotle for themselves. (laughs) Here's some free pizza. Here's some free pizza. So Ross and I felt a little like, you know, like one of those faithful people in the Gospels that always gets it wrong, you know? There are always these moments where the people who should know better, who should know that they're supposed to do the right thing, don't do it. And the most unlikely people, no dig at Asbury, of course, the most unlikely people shine Christ's light to others. And that's a reminder for us as we go into the gospel reading for today, because there's something really important here that I want to point out. Friends, our our scripture reading for today comes from the gospel of John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. You'll find it printed in your bulletin for your convenience, or you can follow along in your own Bible or pew Bible. I invite you to hear these words from the gospel of John. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that the child was alive. So he asked them the hour 
when he began to recover. And they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, someone who is a, a, a teacher, a professor of some sort named Laura Copley wrote a commentary on today's uh, scripture reading, and she included an illustration, a story uh, from history. There was a full-fledged celebrity back in the mid-1800s who was named Charles Blondin. He wowed everyone. He was a tightrope walker. Abraham Lincoln even mentioned him as he was going around campaigning for the presidency. Uh, On June 30th, 1859, Blondin was attempting what no one else had ever done before. He was going to walk across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. From the New York side to the Ontario side, some records uh, say that about 100,000 people showed up to watch. And so being sort of uh, the showman, you know, that he was, Blondin looked at the crowd and says, you know, do you believe that I can walk across Niagara Falls? And of course, we all know that there's a small group of people that were kind of hoping something would go wrong. But most people said, we believe, we believe, they shouted to him. And he walked across that tightrope over Niagara Falls. And he got to the other side and people were amazed. They were amazed. And so he said to the crowd again, do you believe I can walk across blindfolded? And they said, we believe, we believe. And so he puts on a blindfold and he walks back across Niagara Falls. And then Copley tells us that he says, do you believe I can walk across this tightrope again, pushing a wheelbarrow? Now, this is not one of the -the state-of-the-art wheelbarrows we have nowadays. This was an 1850s rickety old wooden wheelbarrow, right? Do you believe I can take this across? We believe, we believe. And he goes across to the other side. And on the other side, he finally says, do you believe I can walk across this tightrope? Yes. With the wheelbarrow? Yes. With a person inside of it? Yes. Who wants to do it? (laughs) Nobody volunteers. Nobody volunteers. Even though they have said, we believe, and they've seen him walk across over and over again, nobody wanted to put their lives in that wheelbarrow being driven by that man. However, there was one person who actually did go across with Blondin across the Niagara Falls, and that was his manager. His manager jumped on his back, you know, piggyback style, and Blondin walked him across Niagara Falls, according to history. There are other things that uh, Copley left out. I found on Wikipedia uh, information about this. And apparently before he took his manager on his back, he also, also took a chair out to the very middle of the falls and put one of the legs of the chair on it and stood on top of that chair on the tightrope. It also says, and I don't know if this is true. I have a little bit of skepticism about this one, that he walked across 
the tightrope, got to the middle, sat down, and cooked and ate an omelet. How did he cook an omelet on a tightrope? You know, maybe Wikipedia doesn't always have all the right information. I don't know. But all of these things were amazing. But did you notice when it came to putting themselves in the wheelbarrow, they didn't believe fully in what he said he could do. No one in the crowds of tens of thousands wanted to join in. Copley says this in her commentary using this story. Belief is more than stirred up emotions. Belief is more than intellectual assent. Belief, trust, and all of that is putting our life on the line and getting into Jesus's wheelbarrow. Today, we are continuing our study on the seven signs that we find in the gospel of John. And these signs are, in a sense, miracles But they're not normal miracles that we might find in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Meaning that the point of sharing these miracles is not just to say, wow, look how amazing Jesus is. He must be someone special. The point of these signs is to point beyond themselves. That's one reason why John, the Gospel writer, calls them signs instead of miracles. Because they are moments, they are uh, intimate Uh, amazing uh, occurrences that point beyond themselves to something more, something about who Jesus is, how unique he is, and what he's been called to do. John chooses seven along the way to point out more. In fact, if you were to look up a lot of the commentaries on the Gospel of John, you would notice that the chapters uh, from chapter 2 until chapter 12 are called the Book of Signs because they really weave the whole story of Jesus together in these seven. Last week, we talked about the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. That was the first sign. And today we look at the healing of the official son, the second sign. If you were to read the Greek version of the New Testament, there are a couple things you would uh, find out about this. Number one is this, this royal official, as he is called, Uh, is really the king's man. That's what it says in Greek. Not royal official, the king's man. This was somebody who worked closely, we think, with King Herod. Now, King Herod was part Jewish, but he was not very faithful as a Jewish person. His kingship was sort of orchestrated by the Roman Empire. He was not there to serve the people. He was there to serve himself. And he would often try to stamp out anyone who challenged his own authority. And records have told us that King Herod was not someone who lived faithfully. He was not somebody who really looked out for the least of these. Again, he was not really that religious, at least on the inside. And so what's interesting about what happens here is that this is a royal official, somebody from King Herod's court, who shows up in Cana of Galilee, coming all the way from Capernaum because he believes that Jesus can heal his son. He comes all that way, 15 to 20 miles from Capernaum to uh, this area. He has to walk or ride a donkey or something. He has to get all the way over there. It's not a short journey like we might be able to do nowadays, 15 to 20 miles. It was a long, long journey. 
He goes all that way to find Jesus just because he believes he might be able to heal his son. He believes to the point at which he leaves his son in that dangerous position at the point of death, John tells us, because this seems to be his last hope as a father. Now, we might say that when you're desperate, you'll believe almost anything, right? There are records of how people in desperation have tried things that were not really proven scientifically or medically or whatever it is, but they're hoping that something will work. When we're desperate, we might reach out for anything. And so in a sense, this belief in Jesus may not be as deep as we might imagine, but at least it's something. You don't see a lot of the other folks who were most likely faithful Jewish folks in the area putting a lot of faith in Jesus yet. Not a lot of them. The disciples have at least after Jesus turned water to wine. We talked about last week that that was when it says the disciples believed. Here is this Roman official, though, who's stepping out in faith, even though it might be, you know, the beginning of faith, a hopeful faith, faith based on desperation, but at least it's something. All the other folks don't seem to be demonstrating at least that beginning kernel of faith. One of the other interesting things, reading the Greek version of this text, is when Jesus says, you will only believe when you see signs and wonders, seems like it's being said to the man, to the royal official, doesn't it? Because it says, Jesus said to him, you will only believe if you see signs and wonders. But the Greek version of the New Testament, the original version, doesn't say you as in singular, singular, it says you as in plural. So it's more like saying, y'all won't believe unless y'all see signs, right? So while Jesus is talking to the man, he's really talking about everybody else there. They don't really seem to have get in the wheelbarrow faith in Jesus unless they see something amazing. We don't believe this royal official has seen something amazing yet because Number one, the only recorded miracle in the Gospel of John thus far is turning water to wine. And we know the only people who saw that were the waitstaff for the wedding, the disciples, and Mary, his mother. So at least this man has traveled all this way on hearsay that this is someone amazing. He doesn't really know. He hasn't seen with his own eyes the signs and wonders, but he's heard about them. Jesus says to them, you guys won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. And then he turns to the man who then asks him to come back with him to Capernaum to heal his son. Again, in desperation, we think this man is saying, my son is at the point of death. Please follow me, Jesus, 15 to 20 miles back to Capernaum so you can heal my son. Jesus says, go, your son will live. In fact, if you read the original Greek, it says, go, your son is alive. Your son is well. And then you get to the point at which that desperation faith has to turn to something more. Think about yourself in this position. If you had a child or a loved one at the point of death, and you knew that this person might be able to heal, 
this person in your life and you asked them to do it and they said, go, it's already taken care of. How much do you trust this guy? Are you willing to return 15, 20 miles based on the words of somebody who never even laid hands on your child? It takes a lot of faith to do that, doesn't it? He doesn't say, Jesus, I believe in you, but just in case, could you follow me back home? He doesn't say that, does he? He turns and walks away. He turns and walks away, and about halfway home, he finds out from his slaves, his servants, that his son is alive. Now, you might be wondering, how in the world, if it was only 15 or 20 miles, how in the world did he uh, not get home that quickly? Why does it say, yesterday at 1 p.m., your son was healed? That's because, in the Jewish understanding, sundown is the beginning of a new day. So at night, at night, that's when he runs into his servants while he's on his way back home to find out if his son is okay. That's why they meet him. In our understanding, it's the same day, but for them, a new day is started as soon as the sun set. This man, in a sense, has to get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus, right? (laughs) He's got to get in the wheelbarrow. He's got to trust that Jesus healed his son from 15 or 20 miles away with just speaking a statement, uh, an announcement, one tiny sentence. Would we believe like that? It takes great faith to turn around and walk away believing that Jesus did what he said he had done. This higher level faith, this get into the wheelbarrow faith is something impressive that no one else around going to the synagogues, you know, praying daily. None of them seem to show this kind of get in the wheelbarrow faith, but this royal official who probably rarely ever practices faith demonstrates it. And this is probably not true, but I did read in one commentary that it's possible, it's possible that this man is somebody mentioned in the book of Acts, a man who had had a healing take place in his home, and he was somebody who was an early adopter, a believer in Jesus in Capernaum. So it's possible that everything that John said about him having faith and his whole house coming to faith was true and it resonated throughout the New Testament. When you are in prayer and you're asking God for something near and dear to your heart, And you say something like, amen. Do you get up from your prayer? Do you get up from your your knees? Do you get up from wherever you've, you've been praying and saying, it's in God's hands. And go on confidently in your day. Not knowing how God's gonna take care of it, but at least it's in God's hands, right? You're confident that God's gonna do something. I know that I struggle with this. I will pray for something for myself, for my family, for our church, And I will worry about it after I say amen. I will worry myself sick sometimes about these things. And I don't know how to take the step forward from that sort of surface level faith to that get in the wheelbarrow faith other than to try and trust. 
and to be focused on looking around to see how God is actually answering these concerns of these prayers, celebrating that and learning to trust again. It's sort of like putting all of your faith into him over and over and over again and getting stronger, getting more faithful over time. It's not a sense of something we just flip a switch for. It's something that we learn and we practice daily. Now, this is a sign, remember? It is a story, a miracle that we need to learn from, and we do need to focus on the official and his response because it is a demonstration of radical faith. We also, however, need to wonder if this is a sign, according to John, what is it pointing to? What does it mean about Jesus? Most people believe that number one, it points to the unique power that Jesus has as God's son. As the Messiah, as the son of God, as God sent to be with us, the word made flesh, nobody else can heal somebody from that far away, right? 15, 20 miles, nobody else can do something like that. He has to be unique and special. This sign is pointing to that. This is not some medicine man who can come and give a tonic to someone and help them recover. This is somebody who speaks, who speaks, and they're healed. John is very adept at connecting the divinity of Jesus to the holiness of God. One of the things you might learn about the Gospel of John if you're reading along with us throughout this Gospel is not only are there seven signs, there are also I am statements where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, right? I am the gate. I am. He goes over and over, I am, I am, I am. In Greek, it's ego ami, I am. This is connecting him to God because God told Moses his name is I am who I am. I will be who I will be, right? I am. Jesus is saying, I am uniquely connected to the Father. Do you remember how God created order of the world in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Did God, you know, use his hands to do all this? Did he he form everything with, with his hands? No. He said, let there be light. He created with his words. So for Jesus to heal somebody with his words is connected to the God who created things with his words. Jesus's power is a sign that points to his unique relationship to God, that he is God's son, and he is not just some amazing physician or teacher, but he's something more. Another part of what this sign points to is how God through Jesus, can be an encourager and a faith giver. A faith giver. This man, this man came to Jesus in that sort of desperation moment, right? If you come with me, I think, I bet, I hope you can heal my son. And when his conversation with Jesus is over, he's ready to turn around and walk home, right? Maybe not 100% sure, that Jesus did what he said, but a lot more sure than when he first arrived. God can give us faith when we need it. God can grant us grace and hope when we need it. 
sometimes when the going gets tough, it's not about how much we can pull through it. It's more about how God can bring us through it. Jesus is uniquely qualified to help people have faith. It's not in exactly what he says. It seems to be in his presence, in his power, in his moments, conversations, graceful interactions with people. He's able to encourage people to grow beyond what they really believe was possible. This sign points to this power of Jesus, not only to be a healer, but also to be an encourager. He is the person who equips them with faith for what is needed. In another gospel, uh, somebody says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever heard this before? I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus is that person who can help us with our unbelief. To help us grow beyond that. To grow in our trust of him. If you've ever had a lack of faith and you've experienced that sort of Jesus picking you up and helping you get through another day or helping you get through a difficult time, that's exactly what John in the sign is pointing to, that Jesus has the ability to grant us faith when we might need it most. When we have a lack of faith, we sometimes beat ourselves up, don't we? You know, we ask questions like, if I believed more, would this have happened? If I had prayed the right prayer, would this have happened? And it doesn't seem like God's the kind of person waiting for us to get it right before he does what's good for us, does it? The world was not in very good shape when Jesus arrived. So it's not that we have to, in a sense, beat ourselves into shape so that God gives us things. It's that we need to acknowledge the areas of our lack of faith and ask God to help us, to grant us what we need to become more full in that. It comes, it comes through God's gift to us, but it also comes through our practice of putting trust in God over and over and over again. This second sign, the healing of the royal official's son, points to Jesus' power. His, his speaking the words of healing from miles away and having it happen. Immediately, did you notice? Because the man connected the dots, right when Jesus said to him, your son is alive, at one in the afternoon, his son was healed. But it also points to the kind of caring Messiah and Savior that we have, who's willing to help us with our faith, to help us with our belief, so that when we jump, we're not falling into nothingness. When we jump, when we take that leap of faith, we're coming solidly into the hands of the one who gave his life for us. Well, thank you for joining us, and I hope that you found this message to be meaningful and life-giving. I look forward to you joining us next time, either on our live stream on Sunday mornings here at Bluff Park United Methodist Church. It's at 10 o'clock a.m., or if you want to join us in person, you're welcome to do so also here at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can find out more about our church family, who we are, what we do, and how to get involved, as well as more information about our worship services at www.bluffparkumc.org. Hope you have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next time.